Our scripture text this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You know, these past several Sundays, we've read through those hard-to-pronounce names and places in the book of Judges. So I thought I'd give the readers this morning a break. You're welcome, Melanie. I've always been fascinated by top 10 lists, and I occasionally enjoy surfing the web to search for lists like the top 10 movies of a certain genre, the top 10 episodes of a particular TV show, and so on. And growing up in the Philippines, I listened to a U.S. radio program that perhaps the older folks here are familiar with, American Top 40. No, I'm not going to sing it. American Top 40. I listened to the show with anticipation because of my curiosity as to what the top 10 songs were and what the number one song was for that week. I found it, and still find it, a very interesting way to get a bit of insight into cultural trends and contemporary thinking. Now, one list I found particularly interesting is a list of the top 10 most popular Bible verses in the U.S. If you do a search online, you'll find that there are many sites that each have their own version of the top 10 verses. But invariably, you'll find certain passages that consistently make the list. There's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then there's the entire 23rd Psalm, and so on. Now, our passage for this morning, Romans 8.28, consistently makes the top 10 and occasionally even the top 5. And it's not hard to see why. Let me read the verse again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. I would guess that most, if not all of us, have experienced difficult or extremely challenging periods in our lives. And during those times, perhaps you've had a well-meaning friend comfort you by saying these words. It will all work out in the end. I mean, they mean to comfort us and give us hope. And that's why Romans 8.28 is such a popular verse. God promised through the Apostle Paul that everything will work together for good. And it's a comforting, reassuring verse even for non-Christians. But at the same time, it's also one of the most misapplied texts in Scripture that can be harmful when misused. And so what I'd like to do this morning is for us to have a closer examination of this verse. First, we'll look at what is promised. And second, we'll look at the qualifiers of that promise. And lastly, we'll consider our response to the implications of this promise. Now first, what is promised in this verse? And why do folks find it comforting? Fact is, all of us go through life with a myriad of fears. Fear of contracting a painful or terminal disease, fear of loss of employment, fear of death, fear of not having enough to live on, fear of losing a loved one, and so on. And all these fears come about because of the unknown future. We don't know what tomorrow brings. So we hope it's something good, but we fear it's something bad. And at this point, I'd like to give you a hypothetical scenario. What would be your reaction if, your, your feelings, if Jesus appeared to you today and said, don't be afraid? From now on, nothing bad will ever happen to you. What will that do to your fears? 
Well, first of all, you might say, God didn't say that nothing bad will ever happen to us. And you're right. There's nothing explicit in Scripture that states that nothing bad will ever happen to us again. But in a very real and profound sense, that promise can be found in Romans 8.28. And you might say, wait a minute. It doesn't say that only good things happen to people and nothing bad will ever happen to them. It's true. It's not in the text. But I propose that if we examine it more closely, we can infer from the verse an indirect promise that takes a bit of reflection for us to see. But first, let's look at what's clear in the text. God is at work in such a way that everything that happens to us, all the things we encounter, all are working together for our good. Now, it doesn't mean that everything that happens to us, when considered by itself, is a good thing. But in his providence, he's making everything that happens to us work for our good. Now, hang with me here in in what I'm about to say. If, in fact, everything that happens to us happens for our ultimate good, would it not follow that ultimately everything that happens to us is good? If God is working through things for our good, ultimately, we can say it was good that it happened. But notice the qualifier there, the word ultimately. In the immediate sense, in the here and now, something that happens to us could be unquestionably bad or evil. But behind it is God causing it to bring about something good ultimately. It's possible that we will see how things turn out for the ultimate good, but not always. And there's no guarantee that we'll have this experience in our lifetime. But every now and then, God in his mercy and wisdom allows us to see how he redeems evil that we experience or encounter, although it could take a long time. And we are called to wait on him. One account in scripture that shows God working in this way is in the life of Joseph. If you recall the story, his brothers became envious of him and started a chain of events in Joseph's life. He was put in a pit, sold into slavery, ending up in Egypt where he was cast into prison after being falsely accused. Eventually, he became prime minister, or Egypt's prime minister, put in charge by Pharaoh to prepare the nation for an upcoming famine. Now, obviously, I'm skipping many, many details in the story, but let me just mention that Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold as a slave and was 30 when he entered the service of Pharaoh. Have you heard of the movie 12 Years as a Slave? Well, Joseph's experience tops that by a year. That's a long time to wait on God to eventually work things out. Eventually, Joseph's brothers had to go to Egypt to procure food and to make a long story short, it was finally revealed to them that the prime minister of Egypt is their brother. The brothers, along with Jacob, eventually moved to Egypt to dwell there. But after Jacob died, the brothers were in fear. They were afraid that Joseph had not exacted vengeance on them only for the sake of their father and that with his death, Joseph will finally get his revenge. We're told what happened next in Genesis 50 verses 18 to 20. It says, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is saying, it's because of you 
that I was sold into slavery, thrown into prison, and endured many years of pain and affliction. But at the same time, Joseph recognized that over and above the actions of his brothers was the overarching providence of God. Ultimately, his good, holy, and righteous intentions were being worked out. Now, just a point of clarification. God was the primary cause of those events. He was not merely reacting. The brothers were the agents, the secondary causes, if you will, through which God accomplished his purposes. Now, God has a role, and human agencies have their roles, and while they are both important in the unfolding of events, they are not the same. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. If there was an Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28, it would be that verse. Now, something worth noting is that Joseph did not gloss over the sins of his brothers. He called them for what they were, evil. He did not make the mistake of describing their actions as good merely because those actions ultimately resulted in something good. In fact, it is clearly prohibited in Scripture to do something like that. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we see this prohibition violated time and time again in our society. Whenever we hear folks that having free choice on what we can do with our bodies is good, even when those choices result in the ending of an innocent life. Whenever folks say that the redefinition of marriage is good. Whenever folks say that extramarital affairs are good for the health of a marriage. Whenever greed and selfish ambition are extolled. All of these and more are instances when we call as good something that God unequivocally declared to be evil in his sight. But what about those of us who identify with Christ? Do we do that? Do we call evil good and good evil? Well, perhaps not consciously or overtly, but we can do it in more subtle ways. When we sin and try to justify ourselves by attending to make our actions appear virtuous, we're calling evil good. When we point to higher, noble intentions to justify sinful actions, we are calling evil good. On the other hand, when we are faced with suffering or other difficult life situations, we have a choice of either humbly lamenting before God or shaking our fist at Him in anger. If we do the latter, we are effectively accusing Him of doing evil in the aff affliction and pain we're experiencing. We are calling a good God evil. Beloved, we need to be aware of this. We need to be careful to ask for grace to fight the temptation to commit a very fundamental sin, calling good evil and evil good. So, evil that ultimately results in good is in itself not good. Now, at this point, I'd like you to bear with me as I'm about to say something that sounds oxymoronic and potentially confusing. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we're familiar with oxymorons, like working vacation, or jumbo shrimp, or open secret, or liquid smoke, and so on. Well, I'm about to give you one. Bear in mind that we're talking about evil that ultimately results in good. We might say that they are good-bad. Let me clarify that. By good-bad, I'm referring to something that, humanly speaking, is really a bad thing. 
But God's providence working through that bad brought good. Another example in scripture is the treachery of Judas. We don't want to say that what he did qualifies as a good deed. And that's why we call the observance of the death of Christ not Bad Friday, but Good Friday. When our Lord was crucified, no question, it was a bad day. But in the providence of God, it turned out to be the best day because it was the day of our redemption. Now, if you look at the list of holidays in the U.S., Good Friday is the only one that has the adjective good. Now I'd like to move on to my second point, the qualifier of this promise. Let me read the verse again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This means that the beneficiaries of this promise are those who once did not love God, but now do. And that's because God called them effectually from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith, from death to life, And in so doing, he has planted within them a love for himself. Now, the qualifier makes it clear that the promise is not a blanket, universal promise from God whereby he says, I'm going to make everything that happens work together for for the good of everybody to whom it happens. There's a very important restriction in this promise, the implications of which we should seriously consider. If you're not a Christian and you're listening to me right now, may I say to you, There's no guarantee that everything that happens to you is ultimately for your good. If you do not love God and are not numbered among those who are called according to his purpose, if you are actively working against the purposes of God, please don't take refuge in this verse. And I say that with compassion, hoping that you will see that there's mercy in this warning. So then what can we say about the things that happened to non-Christians, both good and bad. Well, here's the bad news. If all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, for those who don't love God, for those who are actively working against the Father and his anointed one, all things work together ultimately for their destruction. This is a very sobering, if not outright scary thought. It's so scary that people who don't love God maintain a level of calmness by denying or ignoring one aspect of God's character, his justice. In his justice, God punishes impenitent sinners. And the person who refuses to submit to God, even if he acknowledges his existence, hopes that God will somehow capriciously forgive every sin that the person ever committed and never call him or her into account. Have you noticed that in our culture, there's a growing repugnance to the idea of punishing someone for crimes committed? There's even a growing opposition to the very concept of punishment. But God's not interested in the results of the latest poll. He's not interested in being politically correct. He has decreed that he will punish the wicked and that there will come a day in which he will judge and call everyone into account. So for the people who who do not love God, the good things that they have received from God's hand throughout their lifetime will actually work not for them, but against them. Those good things in this case we could describe as bad good. And just like good-bad, 
are bad things that ultimately work out for good. Bad good are good things that work towards the worst possible thing, condemnation and punishment at the hand of God. One movie I don't mind watching repeatedly is Groundhog Day, surprise, which follows the story of a guy named Phil who lives the same day over and over with the chance to do something different each time. One of the things he did repeatedly is catch a boy falling out of a tree. And each time, the boy just runs away and Phil shouts out to the boy, you little brat, you never thank me, but I'll see you tomorrow. It's a funny scene. <laughs> but in real life, ingratitude is not funny. In fact, it could be downright offensive. Have you ever done something sacrificially for someone and you did not receive a word of thanks or appreciation? Even if you didn't do it with expectations of gratitude, at the very least, it's disappointing. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul tells us the two fundamental sins that mankind commits against God. He wrote in chapter 1, verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. These are the two most common offenses that men make against God. A stubborn refusal to honor Him and ingratitude. We are told in James 1.17 that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. There is nothing that is good that Christians and non-Christians alike have ever received that was not from the hand of God. Yet folks might attribute the good things they have to their abilities or to luck. Those folks take credit for every good thing, never even considering that whatever gifts they possess were bestowed by the one who created them. And that ingratitude is repugnant to God. And because of this, every time God gives us a gift, it can become an occasion for the increase of our sin. Jesus said, that during our lives in this world, we can actually store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. In the same way, Paul explains to us in Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This passage and others like it give credence to the notion that there are levels of punishment in hell. And so, if we receive a blessing and we neither acknowledge nor give thanks to God, all those things do not work together for our good. But rather, they work together to bring about an increase in our punishment, our condemnation. Friends, this is the qualifier in Romans 8.28 that we should not miss. If we take refuge in this verse while not paying attention to the qualifier that the promise only holds true for those who love God, it's nothing more than wishful thinking. A hope without basis that does nothing more than sugarcoat a very scary, sobering reality. Now this brings me to my last point. How should we respond to this promise? Well, first, let me address those who are followers of Christ. If you follow Him and you love and honor God and you have a sense of reverence, devotion, and affection towards Him, how can the promise that all things will ultimately work together for your good help you in your walk with Him? 
But we know that the Christian life is a continuing fight for faith and joy. And the struggle is most difficult during times of crisis when we are called to trust in the promises of God. We live in a fallen world. And in it, there's pain, sickness, loss of loved ones, wars, and many, many other evils that plague human existence. And when we experience them, you can add pandemics, by the way, and we ex- when we experience them, it can be exceedingly difficult to hold on with confidence to our belief that God is at work during those times. During those times, our faith is tested. To what degree do we trust God with our tomorrows? To what degree do we trust God's promises? I mentioned in the beginning that one of the most popular verses in the U.S. is the 23rd Psalm. And I suspect that a big part of that is because David, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, penned these comforting words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. How reassuring is it to know that God is walking with us? We know this to be true. Yet, as we all know too well, one of the hardest things to do is getting our faith from our brains beyond mere cognition and into our soul's DNA, so to speak. It's like the difference between believing in the existence of God and believing God. That is, trusting what he, that what he promises he will do. Now imagine this. Jesus appearing to you today, calling you by name and telling you, Today, I want you to go through the valley of the shadow of death and I will be with you. If that happened, what will that do for your courage? If it happened to me, I would like to think that I would say, Lord, if you're going with me, what are we waiting for? Let's go. Because that is what I would say if I really believe in his promise. Not just what he said, but that he will do what he said. But as for me, I will be the first to admit that I'm not in a place in my faith well, where I can say that that is what I would say. There are many things in this world that frighten me. Scary things that are hiding, lurking in the, val- in the shadows of that valley. Now, Jesus doesn't have to appear to me and give me the promise that he will be with me. You and I, we already have that promise from God. Yet my fear, perhaps your fear as well, is that as soon as I, foot, as, as I set foot in that dark valley, he'll leave. It's hard to trust the promise of God's presence when we can't see him. And yet he is there. And it is in clinging to his promises that give us victory in our fight for joy and faith. And so going back to Romans 8.28, when Paul tells us that all things work together for good, He's not just being an optimist. Rather, he's telling us that God, by his providence, guarantees his presence in the midst of suffering and that no matter what happens to us in this world, he will redeem them for our ultimate good. In the first part of John, book of John, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said this, In the world you will have tribulation. For all of us here, there are only three possibilities. We have either gone through a trial, currently undergoing a trial, or about to go through a trial. A devastating illness, financial difficulties, relational strife. It's all a reflection of the fact that we live in a fallen world, a valley of tears. But after Jesus made this downer of a statement, 
He continued, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There are many times in scriptures where we are told, take heart, fear not, be strong and courageous, be anxious about nothing. God knows that we face a myriad of fears, but he through Paul is calling us, beloved, to trust in him. And the promise in Romans 8.28 is one of the weapons in our arsenal that he gave to us to be victorious in our battle for faith and joy in our Christian walk. May that be an encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, beloved of God. But now let me address those among you here who are not Christians. And by that, I mean folks who have not put their trust in Christ's work on the cross as the only means by which you can be reconciled to God. You might ask, why do I need Jesus? Well, first of all, the only people who don't need Jesus are people who have never committed a single sin in their entire life. Not a single one. And I'm quite certain, no one, not just in this room, but in the entire history of mankind, lived a sinless life except for Christ himself. You might think, well, I admit to committing some sins, but none of them are the heinous kind like murder, rape, and the like. Well, I grant you that not all sins are equally heinous. But the question is not the nature of your sin, but that you sinned at all. Even if your entire life, all you ever did was disobey the government, and which, whom God gave authority, by the way, by driving through a stop sign or deliberately driving one mile per hour over the speed limit, God considers you a lawbreaker. And the breaking law of laws is the very essence of sin. Well, then you might say, well, I've done so many good things in my life, and all things considered, I'm on the positive side of my good works versus sin ledger. First of all, if that were the case, that we can be reconciled to God by doing more good than evil, how do you know you're on the positive side? If I were in your shoes, unless I've kept a detailed account of my good deeds and bad deeds since I was born, I wouldn't trust my memory, my gut instinct on this, not when my eternal destiny is what's at stake. But secondly, that thinking presupposes that that's how God revealed to us as the way to be reconciled with him. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's not how we think God thinks, but rather what he has declared. And he has said that in our good works, we can never atone for our sins. Rather, it is only by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that can atone, that can erase our sins. <laughs> Do you see what I'm doing here? I'm painting you in a corner telling you that the only way to be reconciled with God is through Christ. And I hope that as you are hearing this warning, you see this as an act of mercy from God. You probably heard that God is a God of love, and there's no disputing that. But he's also a holy God, a God of justice, and he will not compromise those aspects of his character. If you are placing your trust in anything but the sacrificial work of Christ on your behalf, in order to be declared righteous before the God who created you, it is with sadness that I tell you this. Romans 8.28 should bring you no comfort. The promise is only for those who love God, and part and parcel of that love is believing what he has said to us. And that means going beyond merely agreeing with what he said, but trusting what he said with our lives, first and foremost of which 
is his declaration that it is by no other means, no other name, but by the name of Jesus by which we can be saved from the punishment of our sins. I offer you no comfort from Romans 8.28. Rather, I offer you other things that God said in his word that can give you hope. First of all, let me point out that you are not here or listening to me by accident. God ultimately caused events that eventually brought you here, and now you are at a crossroads. It's my hope and prayer that after this morning, you will desire to have those events ultimately work out for your good instead of your destruction. You do not need to be clean and perfect to come to him. The truth is that everyone who has ever come to him came as a sinner needing to be forgiven. Jesus said in Mark 3.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And sinners includes everyone who ever lived. Hebrews 3.15 says, As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I can go on and on, citing the grace and mercy of God in extending forgiveness and reconciliation. Not by your works, but by the atoning death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the beginning point of being a child of God, of the God who created you. To acknowledge your sin, come to him in genuine repentance and sorrow, and acknowledge that what he did for you through Christ is true. And if the words I'm saying, through the words I'm saying, God is convicting you, please don't let this hour pass without asking someone here, perhaps the person who brought you, to explain the gospel to you. Now that brings me to the end of my message this morning. And right now, let's spend a couple of minutes in silence and with our hearts and minds, let's commune with our Creator, thanking Him for the surety we have not only in the promise in Romans 8.28, but also the many other promises that our good and gracious God has given us in His Word. Let's also confess the many times we've failed to trust Him and let's ask him for the grace to walk in faith and joy in this life. And I will close us in, in a minute. Let's go to him now.